This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. From Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenue's Minor League Podcast. I am Steve Saipa, and I'm joined this week by Lucas Vlahos, Ken Levin, Thomas Henderson. And the draft is a few days in the rearview mirror now. And a lot of times with a lot of things, they look clear when you give it some time. And this year, the draft is only five rounds total. Last year, it would have been ten rounds over the first two days. But basically, my schedule is like this. Wake up, eat, and then glue myself to the computer, researching and typing as fast as I can and as much as I can so that I keep pace with the selections that the Mets are making. This year was a lot easier since it was just one pick on the first night and then four on the second as opposed to two on the first and then eight on the second like it usually is. But I'll have like I'll have the draft on in the background just kind of listening but it's going in one ear and then out the other because i'm busy researching and writing so one hindsight here uh one of the benefits of hindsight i should say is that i can sit back now and look and see what other teams did and who they got and everything else like that and then look the mets and see how they did and you know kind of just let it stew and think about it and then compare so i feel like i'm kind of stuck in between two polarities with their first pick here, Pete Crow Armstrong. I was a fan of his pre-draft. Obviously, there's a lot to like in his profile, both physically as a baseball player and as a person. But at the same time, listening to some other people out there, you know, a few of them who I definitely respect and take their opinions to heart, I feel like a lot of people out there are also kind of pessimistic about him for a variety of reasons. So it's like, I don't want to get too excited but then at the same time, I don't want to be like one of those people that are too pessimistic either. But the biggest thing is that they didn't pick Mitch, uh, Mitchell Garrett. And thinking about it more, I really wish that they had. Um, you know, it's not like they did anything crazy like the Red Sox did and picked someone who clearly wasn't a first round talent. But, you know, you know, it's just I think that Garrett is the better talent. Um right now and you know over the course of you know a few years down the road if the Mets had picked him the Brewers probably would have picked PCA so again it's not like they were picking somebody and leaving you scratching your head you know um 
it really was one of the two. But in hindsight now, I do wish a little bit more that they had gone with Garrett. Their second round pick, JT Ginn, great pick. Um, A story, years and years ago, I was, uh, 2012, I was against drafting Lucas Giolito. And I wanted someone who would have been a safer pick. Because the Mets at the time, the system wasn't great. They needed, you know, high quality players. But a miss on one of them would be a big hit for the system. And they drafted Cheech. And what happens? The guy that was supposed to be safe flames out. And it took him a couple of years, but Giolito, he's really blossomed into a, a solid mid-rotation pitcher. So they're able to get a guy like Ginn because his stock fell, because of the Tommy John, and he was available. So, great. Um, you know, younger Steve, maybe, younger and more conservative Steve would have not maybe been as happy as older and wiser Steve. Uh, the third pick, Isaiah Green. I was wishy about him on draft night, and I still am. And my main thing is how his selection impacted the rest of the draft. With PCA and and Ginn, you know that the Mets were going to have to go over slot to some degree, so they'd have to start saving money with other pick. And now then, with Green being picked, he's a very talented kid, and that basically means that the Mets would have to completely gut their last three picks. Is Green's potential worth that? I don't know. And I guess I'm still kind of right now leaning toward no, it was not. Because with their next three picks, the Mets selected Anthony Walters, Matthew Dyer, and Eric Ors. And they were all basically guys that were selected to save slot money. And if the Mets weren't immediately, if the Mets weren't interested in immediately saving slot money because they had green, there were a bunch of players that would have been available that could have probably been signed for slot value or thereabout. Um, there's guys like Tyler Gentry, Sam Weatherly, Bryce Bonin, Gage Workman, Jake Edder, Tyler Keenan, RJ Dabovic. You know, these are all guys that would have been selected either in the compensation round or then in the third round. And I think all those guys could be impact talents, and I have more faith in them becoming impact talents than I do Green. Now, there's the question of whether or not the Mets would have been in on those kinds of guys. And in the past, when they have done, uh, when they have approached the draft in a more conventional fashion, the scouting and evaluation wasn't really the best. And a lot of the guys that they were in on, you know, didn't really work out. But Brody's a different GM. Maybe, you know, things are different. I don't know. So who knows? It's It's an unanswerable question, really, at this point. But... On their own merits, Walters isn't really interesting at all. Um, Dyer is interesting because of his versatility, and Ors has the makings of a a solid kind of seeming reliever. But you know, I don't know. I I just don't know. Dyer doesn't have much of a track record, so I'm not really sure what to make of him. Um, if he could stick a catcher, great. Not too bad. But everything I've read suggests that actual scouts don't really think he has the endurance to play there for a whole season. And if that's the case, he's just kind of a role player kind of guy that can play all over the place and hopefully have a bat that maybe justifies the spot on his roster, you know. Ors, same thing. Um, Not too much of a track record. You know, interesting enough stuff. But at best, he probably profiles his like low to moderate leverage uh, reliever, 
you know, don't get me wrong, you need those types, but you can you can find those players all over the place in baseball, and it's not exactly too exciting when they use the last bullet in the chamber for a guy like that. So yeah, overall, I guess I would grade this this draft as a C plus or a B minus. Um, right now, definitely got some really good talent at the top, but there's still a lot of uncertainty about how their careers are gonna go. And the guys that they got at the bottom, I don't really see too much in. So it basically is a draft like last year on the strength of those top three guys. And I think there are more questions about those top three guys this year than there were last Hey guys, Lucas here to give you uh, my personal take on the Mets draft. Uh, we obviously did two pods last week where we kind of gave you our uh, reactions in the moment. And uh, I mean, I don't think my opinion has changed much uh, since since Thursday, but uh, I can I can codify things in a bit more of a, a concrete matter in terms of how I think about drafts and how I think about uh, grade, grading what the Mets actually did here. So, I mean, just uh, starting off, uh, I think about the draft in in two through two windows, right? You have to think about the macro of the gra- the draft, that being, uh, did the Mets have a set strategy? Uh, what was that strategy? Was it a good strategy? Did they execute it well? Um, and then there's the micro of, of who they actually picked. Um, like, do I like the guys they picked given who was on the board when they were picking? Um, and I know we're, we're supposed to be the prospect guys here, and we definitely like have knowledge to an extent, both from our own personal expertise and opinions, and also uh, just a, a level of, of uh knowledge about where to find reputable scouting information like so that's that's a, a useful skill but all all that said uh i'm not someone who's going to go crazy uh critiquing draft picks right even even from the most reputable sources of, of information on draft picks uh it, it, it's a bit of a black box right it's there's a lot of mystery there i mean even if you're going through like baseball america or baseball prospectus or or baseball cube or any of these websites that generally do good work uh there's still just a huge delta in terms of what we know versus what teams know versus how quickly these players can change or how quickly scouting reports can change when you actually bring these players into a system like make one tweak and things are, are totally altered or maybe a, a, a report is based on just one look or something like that so all of this is, is, is to say that I don't go crazy, in most cases, worrying about the micro. Like, this pick makes some sense, and I trust that uh, the Mets scouts are on top of it. Um, what I actually found more interest, what I find more interesting to talk about is, is the macro strategy, right? And that, that reflects the um, Mets' overarching plan for the draft. So, for instance, uh, last year, the Mets took the overarching macro strategy of okay we're gonna dump all our money into our first three picks and then punch the next seven in order to save money and i honestly think that's a fantastic idea i think this is i mean we've talked about this on the pod multiple times they're investing all their money into the top talent in the draft which i know there's the baseball truism of oh well you never know where talent's gonna come from uh albert pujols was a 57th round pick or what have you but the reality is that most MLB players are going to come from the top few rounds of the draft. And the Mets have elected to okay say, okay, we're going to dump all our money into those top three picks or top two picks, what have you, get as much value as you can, and then we're just going to take interesting seniors the rest of the way. And, and simply put, I think those seniors aren't vastly different from the college juniors you'd be taking with those picks. Usually they're, they're just cheaper. Um, 
So that's what the Mets did last year, and obviously it worked incredibly well last year because Matthew Allen fell into their laps. It looks like they tried to do the same thing this year, right? Taking Pico Armstrong in the first, uh, and then coming back in the third to take Isaiah Green uh, while stagging, uh, snagging TJ Ginn in the second, right? So those are uh, TJ Ginn and, and, and Pico Armstrong, who I think we're going with PCA as his nickname just because it's easier. Uh, both of those are first-round talents, right? And the Mets should be happy to grab them. Um, and then they added another very interesting prep bat uh, in the third. Another guy who you wouldn't expect them to grab, given that they've already grabbed a prep bat in the first. So uh, is the pull as big as getting Matthew Allen in the third? No, because Matthew Allen was a much better prospect, I think, than any of these three guys. And uh, I'm sure we'll have a longer discussion in the coming weeks about exactly how we reset the top, Mets top 10, assuming they sign all these three players, of course. Um, and then the rest of the Mets picks really don't merit that much discussion in all honesty, right? There are a bunch of senior signings. Uh, we have one guy who beat cancer twice, which is of course a, a great story. Um, and I hope he does well, but, but the simple fact is that the Mets are making these picks to save money, to sign these top three talents. And from a macro perspective, as I said, I really, really love this strategy. I think it's, uh, uh, the uh, honestly, I think it's the optimal way to add talent without going with one of the more extreme approaches that have been publicized in recent years. That being like just blow the crap out of your your pool, sign prep arms with a uh, prep guys with every pitch, just spend infinite money and then eat the penalties for the next two years, right? So, barring an extreme strategy like that, that I honestly don't think we'll ever see, given uh, the landscape of baseball ownership. I think this is a, the, the Mets strategy is an optimal one. And based purely on the macro of the draft, I'd give it a 9 or a 10, honestly. Um, because I have some questions about exactly the profiles they've selected. And to me, that falls into the macro category a little bit. Um, however, uh, and, and I know I just did a whole spiel about how I'm not going to go crazy with... with uh, uh, discussions on the micro side of the draft, that being the player evaluations uh, on these three guys, uh, I do think it's it's worth noting that that first pick, taking Pico Armstrong at 19, to me seems not not abysmal, right? It's not like they did something extraordinarily stupid and took Eddie Coons in the first or something like that. But it, it, it it's very odd to me that they chose to invest that pick in a high school outfielder with questions about hit and power instead of a college outfielder who has a track record of performing in at a blue chip program uh, uh, who has questions about his hit and power, but questions that aren't as great, right? So with Kevin Mitchell on the board, I really don't understand why you take Pete Crow Armstrong. It's not like you're saving money. And I don't think there's a really, I don't think there's a big chance that Armstrong is going to be a better player in three years than Kevin Mitchell is right now, right? So, so there's this trade-off when you take a high school prospect, of course, right? The risk is higher. The the time scale is longer because they're younger and need to do more developing. So as a, as a, a benefit to those drawbacks, you would hope that you take a guy with more upside, right? That you take someone like Austin Hendricks or, or, or someone in that pool who has maybe bigger question marks about their game but also more upside, like the potential to be a, a 50 home run right fielder or something like that. That's too generous. I should say like 30 home run right fielder. Um, P. Crow Armstrong isn't that. Like to me, he has, he just screams tweener risk. Um, 
who knows, like projecting speed and defense, especially in a guy at, who's 18 is at basically his athletic peak, projecting that to continue into his early 20s by the time he's developed and uh, learned how to hit if he does. That, that worries me a little bit. And honestly, I, I don't understand why you take that player instead of the college equivalent who probably has a better chance to hit, still has those, still is a good, maybe not quite as good a defender in center, but is older. And, and, and like I just said, we don't know how uh, Kerr Armstrong's defense is going to age over the next couple of years. And, and ultimately, right, like I could complain a little bit about JT Ginn. Um, but I think in the second, it's actually a good pick to get, if they had taken him in the first, I would have had more problem with a Tommy John pitcher, but, uh, given that it's in the second when most of the talent pool was, was depleted already, I think that's a good pick. I don't have any hot takes about Isaiah Green, like seems like an interesting prep arm or prep bat, excuse me, perhaps one with even more potential than her Armstrong in, in terms of the offensive side of his game. Um, though that might be overselling him a little bit, definitely in the power aspect, I would say, um, so, so I'm not going to nitpick those two picks because given the talent on the board, they seem good. But there, it seems it just seems to me that there was a very obviously superior option on the table when the Mets selected Crow Armstrong. And for that, I, I ding the grade a little bit. So ultimately, I think I stick with a, a seven and a half ish. I think I went eight on Thursday. I drop it down to a seven and a half uh, uh, grade on this draft. Which is not to say it's a bad draft, right? Like you try to use the whole scale. You don't want to just hand out tens for something you thought was good. I think this. I think thought last year was a ten, really. Um, but the, a lot of that is just having Allen drop into your lap. Um, I think this year is a very solid draft, well ex- executed. Difficult to evaluate a little bit just because of the quarantine situation and the lack of information. But ultimately, I think all three of these, uh, the, these t- three uh, top three picks they've taken, are going to slot in the top 15 prospects, most likely. Uh, Green might be a, little, a hair outside that, but very, very good prospects in this system that needed, that still needs more talent. Uh, and ultimately, I think that's the best best you can hope for in a year where you have an abbreviated draft and a lack of information. So uh, I'm going to go with a 7.5 out of 10 for a final grade on this. Um, Brody's done surprisingly well with the drafts. Got to give him credit there. Uh, we've made no real jokes about how Kerr Armstrong's a CAA client, but I'm sure that will become a meme in in the coming months. So for now, good job on the draft. We'll have uh, more discussions about how these guys slot in going forward uh, in the coming weeks, I'm sure. Hello, everyone. This is Kenny. I'm going to give some of my reaction to this year's draft. So in general, I feel very much the same way about this year's draft uh, that I felt about last year's draft. They did pretty much the same thing, taking... Players who will probably require uh, above-slot bonuses early on and seeking to make up the savings later by signing players who will require you know, below-slot bonuses. Um, in general, I like the talent that they brought in. I think uh, PCA has a you know, higher floor than your average prep outfielder and has the potential to be pretty good if enough things break right. That's... Pretty much all you can ask for from an early draft pick. Uh, I really liked Gin's stuff before the injury. I'm hoping I still like it after the injury. And, you know, there's a there's a, a real tangible chance that he comes back and looks pretty good and the Mets get a player who's, you know, more of a first-round talent in, in the second. That's 
again, I think a pretty good strategy. Um, as far as the rest goes, I, I don't really find any any fault there either. Isaiah Green is, is toolsy, has a lot of the same things to like that PCA has. You know, he might be a little more raw, but there might be more raw athletic ability there, more quick twitch, you know, muscle. And uh, I like that type of player in the second round. It reminds me of... Um, you know, not in terms of the same type of player, but a similar type of profile, I guess, to, to Mark Vientos, where, you know, there's a lot to like, there's some big red flags, but there's some real, you know, upside here. Vientos with uh, with his power potential, and Green with, you know, his just raw athletic ability. He's a plus runner easily, a uh, very good outfielder, and, you know, if the bat comes around, there's you know, potential for a pretty good player at a premium position, just like PCA. Um, you know, Anthony Walters and Matthew Dyer are going to be cheap to sign and are interesting in their own right for, you know, you know, either in, in Dyer's case, you know, let's go with, um, with, for interesting reasons, like, um, Walters has played literally everywhere. Matthew Dyer has played all over the diamond. Um, yeah, I, I think they're they're interesting in their own right, and um, you know I'm looking forward to to seeing them. Finally, you get to Eric Orzi, who's survived and beaten cancer twice, and might have might be the most feel good story in all of baseball right now, <laughs> given how bleak everything else is. So. Finally, as I've said many times over the years, the Mets have very rarely seemed to have a coherent strategy in anything that they do. For the second straight season, I feel like the Mets went into the, went into the draft with a plan. And their plan, they liked their plan. And for the second straight draft, I've liked their plan too. So, you know, good job, Mets. Hey guys, Thomas Henderson here. Here with my more... Um with my draft takes on the 2020 draft a little after the fact, a few days to be exact. Um, as you guys know, we recorded on after day one and after day two of the draft, kind of our hot takes almost, kind of our in-the-moment takes. And I do want to get to the players toward in, the, in the second half of this, but in the first half I really want to talk about the big-picture stuff with the Mets and the big-picture draft stuff with the Mets because I think it's really interesting and I think – this shows a clear plan of what we should expect going forward as long as Brody is the GM and as long as he's able to do what he really wants with the draft. Because obviously he could get fired in a year, he could get fired in five years, it could be who knows, like with GMs. It's very hard to tell. It all depends. There's a myriad of factors going on and there's even rumors with the Mets selling the team. It might be he might get fired in a few weeks if they sell and the owner wants new people who knows and the new owners want new people who knows but as long as Brody is the GM I think we have a very clear plan of what the Mets want to do in the draft and I think that it showed that their 2019 strategy of taking Beatty and then taking Wolf and then taking Allen and then pretty much using the next seven rounds or six rounds whatever it may be to afford those players and really just concentrate all of their efforts in the top three 
I don't think that was necessarily a, it, I, it, I think this year showed that it was not a one year strategy by Brody and the scouting staff I think that this is what Brody and company in the Mets front office want to do with the draft and you because because you don't do it two years in a row if you don't and this year's pool just by Matthew Allen is not going to be falling into your lap in round three every year like a Matthew Allen type Isaiah Green I'm I like Isaiah Green as a pick and I think it's a very interesting one in his own right but I think there's a clear idea that the Mets scouting staff has of we are going to focus on the first three rounds we are going to sign I mean we are going to draft cheaper guys with the rest of our picks in order to afford the first three and I don't think that it's a bad strategy I think it's an interesting strategy and I think it's one that we that as on the minor league side and on the draft side of Amazing Avenue and of Mets fandom I think it's something that we have to keep our eyes peeled for as long as Brody is the GM um and I do think it's very interesting and I also think it's even more so in a five round draft because the Mets only had six picks because they had a comp pick. The Mets only had six picks in this draft, and three of them were used on high-tier two uh, high-tier talent, two of which are first-round talent, I think. If JT Ginn didn't get hurt, he would have been a first-round pick because he was before, and there was no reason to think that he he hasn't proven himself to be worse in college. If anything, he would have made his stock better because he's been good at Mississippi State. Um, he's oh he was only in the second round because he got hurt, and I'll talk about the individual players and how I feel about it in a minute. But I think in a five round draft, when there's even less picks that you have to, um, pri- like there, there there's less cheaper guys that you have to draft that you kind of have to punt on to afford the first three. I think it's even more of a win for the strategy of it because. Like, yeah, it kind of sucks last year that rounds like four through ten were the ones that they didn't that they just kind of drafted the same type of guy over and over again. And this one, it's only a few rounds, and you still are getting that elite talent. And in and the way that the Mets minor league system is set up now, it needs that elite talent. As anyone listening to a Mets minor league podcast would be able to attest to, the Mets do not have an elite farm system, obviously. So if you're going to consolidate all of your focus on getting, basically going quality over quantity and saying, I would rather have six out of the last two drafts, have six like legitimate MLB caliber, like, like I, we, I don't think any of us would be surprised if any of these six players make it to the majors. So, I think the Mets are smart by doing that because they're basically saying that we are able to kind of it's it's a way to quickly get the system into an exciting place. Either you could trade some of the talent, or obviously you don't want to trade players away for in if the trade is bad. But sometimes some prospects will get you a very good player in return. Obviously, we don't want another Kalenic Cano. Diaz situation, even though I am uh, still, to this day, a huge Robinson Cano fan and think he is still has can bring something to the table, it was still, it's a trade that we're going to look back on and probably not love. 
but for the most part, I think it's a interesting and I think it's a unique draft strategy, and it's something that I very much would rather see the Mets do over what they used to do, which was just kind of take very similar players that we're already taking with the college seniors just one year earlier and more expensive, but still not really getting the upside that you would like from rounds four through ten anyway. So I think it's smart by the Mets to do that. Now, for the players, I do think this draft class is worse than last year's, but I don't think that's any fault of the Mets. I think it's just basically the best person that they've drafted the, the best player that they've drafted in the last two years is Matthew Allen and I don't think it's really fair to expect a Matthew Allen in the third round every year because that's that was a very unique situation that the Mets draft strategy allowed them to pull off but I don't want to say this year is a bad one either because I don't think it is I liked Pete Crow Armstrong's for months now I was the probably the biggest voice in Amazing Avenue talking about him um, so it would be <laughs> hypocritical for me to say I don't like the pick but I really do actually like the pick I was pretty excited when they took him because I think his defense and I think his speed is something that gives him a very high floor and like you don't you wouldn't love to see him peek out at fourth outfielder Juan Lagares type and I don't I'm not saying that that's going to happen because like the draft it's he's a young kid and the minor leagues in uh, progress is not linear for any of these kids and who knows what he looks like in four years who knows what he looks like next year it's impossible to tell but I do think that he's someone who's very interesting he has a high floor I think that the ceiling is there for him to be a good player in the like a very good player in the majors even though it's not like a he wouldn't be the type of 40 30 home run guy I think one of the comps that the draft that was going around after the draft was Grady Sizemore, and I think that's an interesting, like, best-case scenario type guy because I think that's... And that's a very valuable player, even though it's a little different than hitting 40 or 50 dongs, which also works, too, obviously. Um, and Ginn, I think, is... This is a specifically smart year in order to take... In taking someone that... In the second round, that is a first-round pick because of an injury, because... There's just less information out there, as we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast. So, if you're taking a dude in the second round who is a legitimate first-round arm, who the only the drawback is Tommy John surgery, which is no joke, as we've seen with Zach Wheeler. Like, for every Jacob DeGrom out there who has Tommy John and comes back perfectly fine, if not better, and knock on all the wood in, in your house that he continues to stay healthy... Um, there's the Zach Wheeler types who it takes two years to recover from Tommy John and yes he ended up being a good pitcher last year and he is a hundred million dollar pitcher and that's perfectly that's a great outcome for him I'm not saying it's not but Tommy John isn't the exact science that I think sometimes it gets the credit of being where people are like oh he has this Tommy John and he'll be back in a year and like yes that's I don't want to say likely, but it's very possible, but also it's very possible that he's never the same again. And of course that's scary, and of course that's not what you want from a draft. But also, I don't see how that's much different than taking another high upside guy who is healthy but just completely raw, like an Isaiah Green who is completely raw but I still like the pick, or a dude just who has a lower ceiling. Because I think if you get a Gin type and get him healthy 
then he is like he's I think the second best pitcher in the Mets system behind Allen already if he comes back and he's and he is what he what what he's shown to be um and in a in a draft that is low information in a draft that's plain weird in a draft that seasons lasted like two weeks and especially with pitchers that's not a lot of starts and um swing for the fences swing for that upside and I'm totally okay with swinging for that upside and green I think is a similar thing I think green is I think the Mets clearly I don't want to say they drafted for need but I think the Mets clearly saw that hey our outfield depth is horrid because you could make an argument that like Tim Tebow is on the outfield depth chart and he shouldn't be because of well obvious reasons so I think I I don't want to say the Mets drafted for need because I don't legitimately think that they did but I also think that you could look at you, you there's a clear hole in the system in in the in the organizational system and there's two guys that they clearly liked in Crow Armstrong and Green and I think that they said this is a perfect time to give the system some athleticism give the system some high upside give the system some defense which it doesn't really have and there's a future out there where Green moves to left field and Pete Crow Armstrong stays in center and they drafted two-thirds of an outfield for years. The, of course, that's like best-case scenario because not every kid makes it. But I think Green has a chance to fill out and really develop some power because he's lanky and he's tall. Um, he is fast. He's a good defender, like I've said already. He has, He's way rawer than Pete Crow Armstrong, obviously, because one was a third-round pick and one was a first-round pick. But I think the upside is still there for him to be a top-of-the-system player because you could see a good hitter develop from his tools. And so I think the Mets went toolsy. I think the Mets went high upside, and I think it's interesting. The rest of the draft, obviously, is a little lower upside, but I think they took interesting players. Um... I wouldn't be surprised if, like, the Mets get maybe a utility player out of it. If even if even if they get the lowest end of a utility player out of it, it's a win because that's how the draft is, and we kind of have to realize that a five-round draft. It's not the first five rounds that we're used to, and I think it's going to take a little bit of thinking about the draft differently in order to really understand what the Mets like the way that they ended the draft. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening this week. And if you have any questions or comments or whatever, you can send us an email at our email address from complex to queens at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and shoot us questions there. I am at Steve Seiper. Lucas is at elvlahos343. Ken is at Ken1191. And Thomas is at SZN. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from, rate and review it, and of course, thank you for listening. And we will be back next week, but until then, love the Mets, love the Mets.